Welcome back, everyone, to the Caught Red Podcast. I am Megan Light. And I'm Jesse Light. And we are just two dog lovers here to talk about some true crime, horror movies, and then, of course, our doggos, too. Back in the normal studio this time. Yes, no beach behind us. Well, there's a bitch behind me, but that's a whole different thing. As you can probably tell, since I am doing the introduction, that must mean Jesse is going once again back to back, baby. Back to back. Only because next week he's got his super soft sports ball draft, and so I will go and do it next week. That way he doesn't have to worry about that and he can do all his fantasy drafts from here until the end of time. And Oh, you're so thoughtful. I love you. Yes, it is football season, fantasy football time. I'm going to read so many books. I've got like three drafts this weekend, so if you don't hear from me on Instagram, that's why. And then it's just me bitching. <laughs> <laughs> well, without... Further ado, because so he, dude, like he was like, I'll do a short, simple one, just like to uh, just to fill in to have one for this week, and then he's like, "Damn it!" That's never how it works. You out. jinx yourself every time. Every time, jinx, but jinx. It is a really interesting story, and it's gonna be a either a long one or we'll cut it into two. We'll just I don't see, know. We'll see how it goes. We'll see where the road takes us. That's why there's not going to be a lot of chit-chatty right here at the beginning. And whenever you want to start, love, have at it. Okay. Well, like always, we'll start out with our sources. I've got Murderpedia. Hell yeah. New York Times. UPI Archives. Isn't or, Derby is cute? That, Look at you Derby. You say archives or ar- archives? It's archives. Archives. You got UPI archives, Deseret News. Derby's over here <laughs> making noises and rolling around. Case text. And then a really good book that I found last minute that Megan actually had on her possession without telling me or anything. I didn't know. <laughs> it was on her Kindle. But still, it's called Closing Time. It was written by Anita Paddock. Very well researched. Really good book. I'm so proud of you. You read it. In less than a day. Yes. That is a very big victory. I did skip a few things, but... On a Kindle, it's easy to just kind of click, 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 and kind of scan a page and click and just roll through them. If you want to on a Kindle, I'm not familiar with how they work, but can you, like, search for, like, a keyword or something? There is a way to do something like that or highlight sections. I'd have to, like, look up the instructions on how to actually work it. I've only ever just, like, I can do the basics, the font, the lighting for you, like I showed you, and then go into, like, a new book or next page. But I think there's a way you can kind of... I bet there's a way you can, like, highlight stuff, though, right? Yes, there's a function for that. I don't know how to do it, though. Yeah, because I was curious, because while I was typing some of this out, I was thinking back on the book, but I didn't know what page to go back and look at. So True. That is a downfall of a Kindle versus having a physical book, is you can't really scroll back on pages really easily. There's a way to go to the top 
and there's like a three line thing you can click that and it takes you to different chapters and you could start on those but you would probably have to know the page number to scroll to gotcha gotcha all right well y'all bear with me here hold on to your butts on september 10th 1980 in van buren arkansas the Staten Jewelry Store was robbed of over $100,000 worth of jewelry, and two people were killed. This episode is to bring awareness to what happened to the Staten family. 51-year-old Kenneth Staten was the well-respected owner of a jewelry store in Van Buren, Arkansas. Everyone called him Kent, except for his wife, who called him Kenneth. That's, yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of Hannah calling JJ Justin instead of JJ like we right. do. Yeah. I, like, I don't who's think Justin? I've, I've never called him Justin to his face. Uh-uh. They were married for 30 years, and he would call her Ruthie, even though her name was Ruth. That's cute. They were inseparable. Life wasn't always easy for this Arkansas couple. Money was difficult to come by mainly because Kent suffered from rheumatoid arthritis since he was a young man, but he never let it get to him. He was wheelchair-bound for a good 20 years. Then, oddly enough, he was in a car accident that actually relieved some of the pain. Whoa. Yeah, he broke his hip in that accident, which required surgery, and then after having that surgery and recovering from it, he was able to get around using crutches, like arm crutches most of the time instead of a wheelchair. Well, shit, break my back. Maybe that'll help. (laughs) Refuse it. Yeah. During his hospital time in rehab, though, Ruth was the breadwinner, helping the family get by. But Kenneth was learning the watch repair business from a course that he bought that they could, like, barely afford. It was, like, $75, which is, I guess, a lot back then, but still, they were having a hard time getting by. And after years and years of hard work, he earned the title of a jeweler. He was able to build a successful career and started his very own store there in Van Buren, Arkansas, in the Cloverleaf Shopping Center. They sold very nice quality jewelry, but they also made a good profit off of their watch repairs and their jewelry repair. And he was able to support his family, which included four daughters. And at the time of this case, they were all adults. Suzanne Staten Ware was the youngest at 24 years old. She worked alongside her parents at the Staten Jewelry Store. She had dreams of becoming a veterinarian and had just started a college course at West Ark Community College there in Fort Smith, Arkansas. She planned her classes around her full-time job at the jewelry store, and she would purposely not schedule classes on Wednesdays because that was her oldest sister's day off. Mm-hmm. It was Suzanne's special day also to get to work alongside her dad. She was the only daughter who had shown real talent in what he excelled at, which was the watch repair part of the business. And she would work side by side with him at the long table in the back room. So that kind of reminds me a lot of, about you. Because mm-hmm. being so talented at so many things, but wanting to be there to help your family, which is your number one priority. So, yeah, I just thought that was cool. I've learned a lot from my daddy. Mm-hmm. Elaine was the second youngest. She lived in Van Buren with her husband and son. She had an 
almost two-year-old named Ben who got all the attention being the only grandchild close by. Kenneth and Ruth visited him nearly every day. Janet was the second oldest daughter. She was married and had two children, but they lived in Paris, Texas, which was really only about a three-hour drive from Van Buren. That's where Katie and Alec had moved to. Okay, yeah, so it's not that far Mm -hmm. away. Then there was Karen, who was the oldest, and like Suzanne, also worked at the jewelry store with them. Karen pretty much ran the front where the glass display cases were. She excelled at arranging gift items and decorating for like the different seasons, like for Christmas time was always, I guess, the busiest time for mm-hmm. the jewelry stores because everybody was buying Christmas gifts. She probably had a really good customer service. So like, you can go up front. Yes, she was in charge of waiting on all the customers. She had the best patience for that. And she was also in charge of ordering merchandise. And then Ruth was always on call and helped when she was needed, which was most of the time. I'm sure you understand this more than anyone. Yep. With a small business like your dad has, you've got to be able to count on your family to step up over anybody else. And Kenneth had a policy that there would always be two people in the store, especially during closing hours, especially with a jewelry store like that. It's dangerous. I mean, people are going to want to try and steal expensive jewelry over anything else. And you say it was in a shopping center or shopping mall or? It was a shopping center. There was like 10 other. Okay. I guess it was like an outlet kind of. Mm Mm-hmm. I was just thinking, I don't know what time they closed their store. It was around 6 o'clock. Oh, that's kind of early evening. Not too bad, but yeah. Okay. He would always tell them that nothing is worth losing their life over. So if somebody was to come in there and try to rob the store just to cooperate with them, which is a tough situation to be in because the thief is most definitely going to have a weapon on him. And Kenneth was one of those people who didn't believe in having a gun with them, so they were already kind of screwed to begin with. Oh, no. Yeah, and he wasn't an intimidating guy. I mean, he was on crutches. He was only five feet, three inches tall himself, and then... All the women in the family were real petite, too. Suzanne was only like 5'1 and just over 100 pounds, built just like her mom. It just reminds me of, and Megan was talking about it, too, uh, the jewelry store that I bought Megan's engagement ring there in Conway. Yeah, so they got robbed one time. Nobody was there. I think it was at night. Yeah, it was overnight. And they stole some jewelry in there. And then since then, like, all the employees carry. Every single one of them is packing heat. Not to mention, they swap out their nice jewelry for fake jewelry and st- put it in the displays. So if somebody was to come in there and steal stuff, they wouldn't lose any money off that. But they've also got like five other businesses. Embroidery. And the embroidery. Uh, the lazy. La- lazy. The laser. Yeah, uh, engraving. Uh, yes. And they engrave like. AK-47s and shit like that. Yeah. It was, they that showed lady us. was so excited to show us that day. She's like, you want to look? Knives and stuff. It was so cool. Very talented. That machine that they have is badass. But yeah, I would just definitely think twice before crossing their paths. So Suzanne loved her parents. The sisters and their parents were very close, and they all pitched in as a team to help the family business. 
and Kenneth never complained about his inability to do what other fathers might be able to do. He definitely kept a poker face on, even though Ruth knew when he was in pain. She could just tell. And she was a hustler, too, even working at the night shift at the Dixie Cup for four years to pay the bills while he was in the hospital. And they knew each other so well. I mean, 30 years of marriage is no small feat. And on their 25th wedding anniversary, Ruth gave Kenneth a beautiful diamond wedding band to show her love for him. Hmm. She just go into like the display and she said, I will take this. I don't think she had it custom made for him. Wednesday, September 10th, 1980 started like any other day. It was Karen's day off being a Wednesday. Suzanne and her dad would work together along with her mom. Ruth was going to leave a little earlier than Suzanne and Kenneth because she had to bring her mother's car over to her house because she was borrowing it and had to give it back. And they were planning to have a family dinner at Karen's house that evening. She had just bought this house, and it was a real fixer-upper, but she was good at all that stuff. And she wanted to have all the family over there together. Spaghetti was on the menu. Yum. Elaine and her family would be coming over. Suzanne lived within, like, walking distance, so she was going to go over after work. She was going to go home first and then change into some comfy clothes, then walk over. You have to wear comfy clothes. Stretchy pants with spaghetti. (laughs) That's what I was thinking, too. And Kenneth was going to pick Ruth up from her parents' house after she dropped the car off. Then they would both head over to Karen's for dinner. Janet and her family wouldn't be there because they were in Paris, Texas. Before heading to work that Wednesday, Suzanne said goodbye to her husband, Tom. Tom dreamed of making it big in the music business. He was a musician, and his band was playing that night in Tulsa, Oklahoma at the Camelot Hotel. One of the other band members picked him up from their home that morning. Sometimes Suzanne would go with him and listen to him play. He sang, wrote songs, and played guitar. They had fallen in love back in, like, ninth grade. High school sweethearts. that's so cute. They married on January 6, 1976, when they were both 19 years old. When you know, you know. You know, you know. Kenneth would always get to work early, kind of like your dad would. Well before the store was to open in the mornings, before any phone calls, before any customers could come strolling in, just to get a head start on the repairs that they had for each day. Wednesday, they had like 20-something repairs to get done. Wow. And it's normal for a small business owner to do. It's often those behind-the-scenes hours that people don't appreciate when it comes to owning your own business. But his family understood how much hard work he put into it. And even, like, the competing jewelers in the state respected everything that Kenneth Staten did. He had built quite the reputation. So their store was in a very nice shopping center, too. So Clover Length Plaza had been around since the late 1960s. In September of 1980, the shopping center consisted of a drugstore, a dress shop, a radio station a small bank, a Hunt's department store, a Walmart, a sporting goods store, a movie rental place, an optical shop, and, of course, the Staten jewelry store. Wow. So it was pretty big. There's a lot of draw coming to that area. Yeah. 
Uh, it was a pretty popular place. And across the highway from Cloverleaf Plaza was a Safeway, which was a large grocery, grocery store. store. Yeah, small deli and a bakery too. Next to that was another bank. So it was a pretty busy area. Around the time Mr. Staten was opening up the store, two other men were planning their next moves to acquire a big chunk of money. They sat on twin beds at a rundown, cheap Terry Motel, which was located just across the river from Van Buren, Arkansas, on Midland Boulevard. Rick Anderson was a 23-year-old with dark, shaggy hair, and Damon Peterson was a tall man in his 30s with dyed blonde hair. These men had met each other about a week earlier at a campground near Horseshoe Bend on Beaver Lake in Rogers, Arkansas. Rick Anderson and his girlfriend, Chantina Jen, worked for the carnival in Topeka, Kansas. And when it closed, they had some time to waste until the next carnival would open up in Fort Smith, Arkansas. They didn't have much to their names. All they really had were sleeping bags and Rick's prized possession, his dark blue Harley Davidson motorcycle. You didn't tell me there were carnies involved <laughs> with this case. Uh, you know now. Rick was so obsessed with Harleys that he had the Harley Davidson logo tattooed on his left upper arm. And Rick and Chantina had reserved the 2-9 spot at the campground. Damon Peterson and his wife, Lorelai, showed up after Rick and Chantina. They just so happened to get the spot next to them at 210. And the two couples hit it off together right away, smoking, drinking, talking shit about how they were going to get some money. Damon needed help working on his car, and Rick offered his assistance. Damon drove a light blue Cadillac with a pop-up camper hooked up to it. And since Rick and Chantina just had their sleeping bags, Damon told them they could stay with them in the camper. And Rick noticed that the camper didn't have a license plate. In its place was just a cardboard cutout that said lost tag handwritten with the Sharpies. Oh so. my gosh. It seemed like Damon was the head honcho and... He had secured his help for this next mission to rob the jewelry store. In fact, Damon and Lorelai had already cased the place out, and he thought it would be a piece of cake. He knew that the owner was an old man that used crutches, and his wife and daughters worked in there with him, and they were petite and could be dealt with without a sweat. Damon and Lorelai had actually gone into the store on the previous Wednesday morning pretending to be shopping for a wedding set. Mrs. Ruth Staten was nice to them and showed them several of their rings. There was small talk about the weather. Lorelai had gone on and on about one big diamond engagement ring and asked Damon if they could afford it. He pretty much said, I'd beg, borrow, or steal anything you wanted. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Yeah. They stayed in the store for an unreasonably long time looking around and not buying anything. It kind of made Ruth nervous, too. Being a Wednesday, Suzanne was working in the back with her father. She came from the back and stood next to her mom, and they both just kept their eyes fixated on this couple. And Damon got that feeling that he was being watched and didn't want to look too suspicious, so they left. But they didn't leave the shopping center. 
They sat out in their old Cadillac with their camper and watched and observed every detail. What time the store closed, what the owners drove, where they parked. They found out that Mr. Staten drove a Mercury and Suzanne drove a green Suzuki Jeep. Like a Suzuki Samurai? Like one of the ones I want? I think so. That's what it sounded like. Because I don't think Suzuki Jeep is a thing. You just mean like a... Probably like the ones that look like a Jeep. Oh. Did you type in Suzuki Jeep? It's a Jimny. Suzuki Jimny. Okay. J-I-M-N-Y. Look at them. Okay. I would drive that's, one of those in a heartbeat. That's your size, too. Perfect for you. Like Just a little clown car. <laughs> yeah. The following Saturday, they went back to the jewelry store this time, they told the woman working that they were just killing time until a movie started. It wasn't Ruth or Suzanne working this time. It was Karen. They noticed that she drove a blue 1976 Camaro. Damon and Lorelai made their way back to the campground on the other side of the river to Van Buren. Damon approached Rick and asked him if he was ready to make some real money, and Rick was very, very short on cash. He had been searching for jobs between carnival gigs, but no one would hire him due to his circumstances. Makes sense. He had no permanent address, not much work experience. So Rick agreed to help Damon. And I think there was talk of just robbing the store and not hurting anyone in the process. Rick probably wouldn't have gone for that, although he was just desperate for cash. Damon was fired up about it, though. After all, he needed another man to help him with his job. Lorelai knew the plan, but she wasn't going to be included in the robbery. And Chantina was pretty clueless to all of it, so... Oh, Lord. Rick and Damon left a couple days before the 10th of September on the motorcycle. They took with them a briefcase with a gun inside, a change of clothes, some rope, and a woman's brown wig and they checked in at the Terry Motel. They found a bar nearby, and, and they got drunk. Damon told Rick that he needed to go check out the jewelry store, too, for himself and get a lay of the land. So Rick went in the store and took mental pictures of the layout, and then they met back up across the highway at the Safeway. Damon quizzed him on what the store looked like. Rick was like, four horseshoe-type cases, two on the right, two on the left, the watches are on the back right, and the diamonds were across the store from them. The counter and cash register were in front of the back door that led to a room where the crippled old guy usually stayed. So he was on top of it. Wow. The next day, they returned to the Cloverleaf Plaza to case the place some more. On this trip, Damon wore a brown lady's wig under his motorcycle helmet. While they were in the parking lot, Rick saw a blonde woman with a cast on her leg. He hollered at her to come over there, and they got to talking, and they asked her if she wanted to get some drinks with them, and she said yes. Her name was Pat Atier. Her and Damon actually went to pick up some beers in her truck in Fort Smith, and they returned to the Terry Motel, so she was, like, super trustworthy. <laughs> super, super trusting, like, right off the bat. Rick followed along in the motorcycle, and so long story short, Damon would go back to her place with her as long as she promised to bring him back to the motel first thing in the morning at 8 o'clock, no exceptions. 
and that's what happened. Gross. The next morning. Gross. Yeah, he was back at the motel, 8 o'clock sharp, Wednesday, September 10th, 1980. He had his briefcase laid out on the bed. In it now was the wig, a rope, a 22 revolver, a 38 pistol, a homemade silencer, and two orange nylon duffel bags. He told Rick to take some washcloths from the motel bathroom, too, because he could use them as gags. At this point, Rick should have known that this was probably going to be a violent crime and not just a peaceful robbery if there's such thing. Someone was going to get hurt. I mean, you had two guns, a freaking silencer. Yeah, what? And then he told him to get some gags. Like, mm, you're in it now, buddy. Rick and Damon visited a pawn shop in Fort Smith and pawned one of Damon's rings for $45, which they needed to hold them over until they got paid around 6 o'clock if their plan went through. Rick bought himself a Dr. Pepper, and Damon got a root beer. All right, back with the Statons. Around 5.30 p.m., Ruth said goodbye to her husband and daughter. She was headed to drop off the car to her mother's house, which was like 13 miles away. And then she would watch for Kenneth out the window to see when he arrived to pick her up to go to Karen's house. It was 5.45 p.m. at the Safeway, and Damon opened the saddlebag on the back of the motorcycle and pulled out his briefcase. He gave Rick a 38 revolver, and he stuck the 22 pistol in his jeans and pulled his shirt down over it. He had the briefcase under his left arm and the root beer in his right hand gave Rick a nod in the direction of the Cloverleaf Shopping Center across the street, and they were off. Meanwhile, Suzanne was finishing up her last watch repair of the evening. She put the watch in the to-call box inside one of the safes. They were both open because her dad had already started the process of closing down the shop and emptying some of the cases. Suzanne turned off the radio that she was so thankful was in the shop because she loved listening to music and it reminded her a lot of her husband, Tom. And at that point in the night, he was probably setting up his equipment to start playing at the Camelot. And it was just then that the front door of the shop opened. Last minute customer, but that's all right. She probably thought, you know. No, it's not all right. You know when the closing time is. Yeah, like whenever... People come into y'all's restaurant at 758. <laughs> yep. A young guy about her age walked in smiling. His jeans were dirty and looked like they hadn't been washed in a while. And to her, he looked familiar like he'd been in the store before. In fact, Karen had waited on him before. The young man sat his Dr. Pepper on the top of the glass ring case. And at that moment, another man walked into the store, and he was also carrying a canned drink. The second guy was wearing what looked like a brown wig. He was tall and sort of soft-looking and smelled of cigar smoke. So what are two men like this doing right, right here, right now, at this jewelry shop at closing time? It's never going to be good. Yeah, I'm sure that's what's going in through her mind at the exact moment, too. Well, sure enough... Rick pulled his gun out first and yelled, This is a robbery. Put your hands up. And Damon pulled his gun out and motioned them to the back room. Damon had a homemade silencer on the end of his gun, so I think it was 
he told Rick to pull his first because it might be more difficult to pull his out with the silencer hooked up to it. He ordered Suzanne to take off her watch and wedding ring, and he told Kenneth to take off his wedding band as well, which was the band that Ruth gave him on their 25th anniversary. And Damon made him hand over his wallet too. Now, usually Kenneth wouldn't carry cash around with him, but on that particular day, he had cashed a check during lunch, so he had some money on him at the time. And the whole time this was going on, Kenneth was just telling Suzanne to do what they told him to do, yeah, yeah, and just to cooperate, and we'll get through this. They just want the money and jewelry, and they're not going to hurt us, just trying to keep her calm. But then Damon told Rick to tie them up and gag them, so... Rick put down his gun on the counter, grabbed the rope that they brought with them, and began tying them up. They're not wearing any sort of mask or anything, are they? They have no masks on, which is another red flag. Oh, no. That it's going to be violent. Not in well. Yeah, because no witnesses, right? Damon was telling them, too, though, don't worry, we aren't going to hurt you. Just give us what we want and you'll live. But while Rick was gathering up as much jewelry as he could, Damon was still waving his gun around. And what he did next shocked Rick. Damon put his gun up to Kenneth's temple and pulled the trigger. (laughs) Suzanne had to see it happen, too, and she knew that she was next. And sure enough, he put the end of the gun in the same spot on Suzanne's head and pulled the trigger. That's horrible. And for good measure, he shot both of them in the head one more time. And remember, it had a silencer on it, so the neighboring stores probably didn't hear this go down either. Or if they have something, like one of those mini businesses you name, you know, Walmart, that's a loud place. I don't know what's next door to the jewelry store, but, you know, probably wouldn't have heard it anyways. They were in between the Hunt's department store and another place. I can't remember the name. But, yeah, like you said, I mean, people around, loud noises, yeah, but still, if it's a silencer, it's not going to matter. Yeah. But Rick was like, what the fuck, man? Why did you do that? And really all Damon had to keep saying to Rick was no witnesses, no witnesses. He's lucky he didn't shoot his buddy. Yeah, I think Rick was scared that he He might shoot him too. Yeah, just to like keep all the jewelry and no witnesses. But but yeah, like I said earlier, Rick should have known if he was a smart criminal, which he wasn't, that it was going to get ugly. Because, I mean, if they're not wearing a mask and they let them live, they're easily identifiable in a photo lineup, you know. They grabbed as much jewelry as they could, and they took Suzanne's keys, and they just hightailed it out of there. They got in Suzanne's Jeep and drove it over to where the motorcycle was waiting at the Safeway. And Rick was thinking this whole time that he just wanted to take the motorcycle and leave Damon there and get as far away as he possibly could, but he couldn't just leave because Chantina was still at the campsite and he only had like $5 to his name, so he needed the money from the jewelry, I guess. But he yeah, he was scared that Damon would kill him too and he couldn't believe that he killed them. I mean, you got to remember, Rick was only 23 years old. Damon was a grown-ass man. But Rick was involved in the murder now too, so he was kind of screwed. He had tied them up, after all, and gagged them, so... Felony murder. Yeah. 
A man named Billy Ray Miller was headed home from work and stopped at the grocery store to grab a few things, and he noticed two men in a Jeep driving a little fast in the parking lot. So he watched as the Jeep stopped and a man climbed out and walked toward the parked motorcycle, and Miller watched as the Jeep left with the motorcycle following close behind, and he didn't think anything of it until later when he saw the crowd gathered across the highway at the Staten's jewelry shop. Linda Godwin, an employee of Oklahoma Gas and Electric Company, worked in a small kiosk at the shopping center. She had also noticed two men walking pretty quickly across the shopping center around 5.45 p.m. One had long hair and the other had scraggly hair, and she thought to herself, why were they in such a hurry? Then, when she later heard about the robbery, she put two and two together Back at Karen's house, Elaine and her son Ben arrived around 6 p.m. They expected Suzanne to show up any minute. The spaghetti was on low on the crock pot, the salad was in the fridge, and the French bread was buttered and just waiting in the toaster. The only thing they were thinking was maybe Suzanne and their dad had some last-minute customers to wait on. It was 6.20, and Ruth was like, Where's my honey? Yeah, Kenneth should be here any minute now. Ten minutes later, and she phoned the store, but there was no answer. 6.40 came, and still no Kenneth. She walked outside and looked down the street for any sign of him. Maybe he had stopped for gas, she thought. Back and forth, she would pace the living room in her mother's house. And every time a car would drive by, she would look out the window, but it wasn't Kenneth. At 6.45, she phoned Karen from the kitchen, and she didn't want to alarm them, but she was worried. She asked if Suzanne was there, and they told her no. And Elaine went to Suzanne's house to see if she was home yet, and she wasn't. And at this point, they all suspected something was very wrong. Kenneth would have called if he was running late, especially since they were all supposed to have dinner together that night. Ruth tried the store's number again, but it was busy. Then again, five minutes later, but nothing. She decided at that point it was time to call the police. And she spoke to dispatch, and they said they'd send a car over to the jewelry store. Obviously, being a jewelry store, there's a little more concern for... What happened? Yeah. And they also told her that she ought to meet them down there. So Ruth got back into her mother's car and made the trip back to the store and her, her daughters were already on their way at that point anyways. Elaine and Karen would make it to the shopping center first. They pulled into the parking lot and saw that Suzanne's Jeep was gone, but their dad's Mercury was still parked where it always was. They walked to the front of the store and saw that the lights were still on, but the front door looked like it was still locked, and Karen didn't bring her keys with her. So they walked into Hunt's department store next door, Karen asked the night manager, Buster Fowler, if he had seen her dad and sister. She told him that she was concerned the lights were still on and the door was locked, and that wasn't normal. He was like, well, let's go look. So they went back out front, and he noticed that the top and bottom latches on the door were not locked, so he pulled on the door and it opened. Once inside, Karen immediately noticed that they had been robbed. She saw the empty glass display cases. 
Mr. Fowler and Elaine went to the back room while Karen and little Ben stayed in the front. Thank God the kids stayed up front. Yeah, that is not, not something, something he wants to see. Yeah, not anybody wants to see. Elaine immediately saw her father and Suzanne on their stomachs on the floor with their ankles and hands tied together. There were gags in their mouths, and they were tied in place, too. There was a pool of blood near both of them, and Suzanne and Kenneth both had two gunshot wounds to the head. And Mr. Fowler, seeing this, he immediately picks up the phone to call the police. Elaine yelled as loud as she could, trying to get them to wake up. She thought that they were just unconscious and didn't realize that they had both been shot. He didn't register. That, and she thought maybe they just got hit in the head by like a baseball bat or something, and she could bring them back. But yeah, I'm sure it just didn't register. Elaine was the only one who truly understood the pain that her father was going through on a daily basis because she also had rheumatoid arthritis, so... She grabbed some scissors nearby and tried to cut the ropes that bound him. And Karen couldn't bring herself to go back there. And she was about to call the police too, but as soon as she picked up the phone, they had already arrived to the scene. And they beat Ruth there too. Ruth driving up mammal speed? I think so. (laughs) A crowd of people from the neighboring stores had already started to gather outside too, and the police told the ladies to step outside so they could start doing their jobs. When Ruth finally got there, of course, the police were there, but there were also three ambulances parked out front. Men with cameras were taking pictures already behind yellow tape. Channel 5 News was there, too, so it didn't look good. And Ruth walked up to the front of the store, but she was stopped by an officer, and she was just looking for her husband and daughter. She didn't know what was going on. The police ushered the family into a police car and took all of them to the hospital. So they thought, well, maybe Susie and Kenneth weren't dead, or at least that's what Ruth thought. But the police just brought them there to get treatment for themselves to kind of cope with the the shock shock and what happened. Yeah, but the Statons weren't interested in any of that. They just wanted to see Susie and Kenneth. So the police drove them back to the shopping center parking lot. And Ruth luckily ran into a friend that she recognized named Tressie Marchbanks. And by that time, the word had spread of what had happened. And she told Ruth that Kenneth and Susie both died. And the Statons got in the car with the Marchbanks and they took them home. And they just sat in silence on the drive back. When they got back to the Statons, they let their other sister, Janet, know who lived in Paris, Texas. Mm -hmm. Her and her husband and two children began the three-hour drive back to Van Buren to be with the rest of the family. And Tom, who was playing with his band in Oklahoma, received a call from his parents, and they were on their way to pick him up and take him back over to Karen's house as well. Wow. And just think, too, if Ruth hadn't left early to go drop off her mother's car... She, she would have been... She would have been dead, too. Mm-hmm. Or if it wasn't a Wednesday, if it was any other day of the week, Karen would have been in there, and it would have been Karen instead of Susan, or a lot of things probably going through their minds at that time. That's all you can really do when something like that happens is what if. Uh-huh. What if, what if. 
whole bunch of scenarios playing out in your mind. Yeah, what if, what if Kenneth had a gun on him, you know? Back with Damon and Rick, they stop at an apartment complex on their way to the motel, and they leave the Jeep there and throw the keys in a drainage ditch. They drive across the bridge to the Terry Motel one last time and got all their things. They head back to the campground at Beaver Lake. It was around 9 o'clock on the 10th when Damon and Rick got back to the campground. Lorelai and Chantina were talking to a couple outside when they arrived. They chatted for a bit, and then when that couple left, the four of them went into the camper and Damon showed them the loot. Dumped it all out on the bed, and they started dividing it up. Some items were priced at like $2,000, and Damon knew which pieces he wanted. The women were allowed to choose some of the less expensive necklaces and rings. Oh, heaven forbid. Right. Chantina told Rick that the other couple was making her nervous. Lorelai had been watching her, not letting her out of her sight all day. She wanted to part ways with them ASAP. Well, so does Rick. Well, so does Rick, but Rick didn't tell him tell Chantina what exactly happened that night, but they both slept in their sleeping bags away from the camper where Lorelai and Damon slept. I would have just left. They should have, but they didn't. The next day, the men took Damon's Cadillac to Economy Lot in Rogers, Arkansas, where they met a salesman, Michael Jeffcoat. They traded the Cadillac in for a dark green four-door Plymouth, they got back to Horseshoe Bend and they built a they built a small fire to burn the boxes and prize tags that came with the jewelry, as well as the beer cans and the garbage that had accumulated in the trash barrel. Damon hooked up the camper to the Plymouth and they headed toward Fayetteville, Arkansas. Rick followed on the Harley. They stopped at 1790 Birch Avenue, where Fayetteville Self Storage was located, and they rented a 10 by 20 foot unit and signed the agreement for a month's lease. They parked the Harley inside and the camper with most of the stolen jewelry hidden in the briefcase in the camper. And then they left town to drive straight to Atlanta, Georgia. And that's where Damon met a few friends where he was able to sell off some of his jewelry and he made out with over $15,000. Damn. Damn. And that was 1980, 15000 mm-hmm. A lot of cash. Of course, they would blow it super fast on alcohol and drugs and all that shit, but... What back, else is new? Yeah. Back at Karen Staten's house, Crawford County Sheriff Ball was with the family. He told them that whoever killed their dad and sister were probably long gone by now. They would want to get out of Crawford County as soon as they could. Karen told the sheriff about a tan young man with white teeth and longish brown hair that had been in the store a couple days prior, shopping for a wedding ring. He stood out to her because he seemed nervous and stayed a suspiciously long time without purchasing anything, and she remembered him saying that he should spend more on his second wife than he did on his first wife, and she thought that if he was for real, then it would be a good sale. So he was just bullshitting. That's such a weird statement to make, though. Yeah, but it's something that stood out to her and she remembered, which was a good thing. And you're going to get a lot of that in this story. Everybody's like so good at remembering for once. Like, 
usually we have terrible witnesses in our stories, but this one is like everybody was on point. Police Chief Virgil Goff, Assistant Chief Wayne Hicks, Arkansas State Police Investigators Doug Stevens and Don Taylor, as well as Prosecuting Attorney Ron Fields, all came in to offer condolences and tried to assure to the family that they would find these men as quickly and as efficiently as possible and arrest them. Did one of those names ring a bell with you? Pretty sure Ron Fields was on my Charles... Ray Vines case. I think he was a prosecutor for that. Okay. Or he might have been on the Ronald Gene Simmons since it was kind of during that time, too. Don Taylor, the investigator with the Arkansas State Police, visited the jewelry store the morning after the crime. He was taking pictures, bagging the root beer and the Dr. Pepper cans that were left behind by the robbers, tagging a sales slip dated September 10th, 1980, that was in the handwriting of Kenneth Staten and examining the rope used to tie the victims. He gets word from a lawyer he knew who was like always in and out of the station. And the lawyer told him that there was a woman who said she had information about the murders and wanted to speak with him. Is this the chick he hooked, the Damon hooked up? Maybe, maybe. maybe. I want to say Damien. I know, because he's like Damien. So he told them to meet him down at the station with the sheriff present. And this woman came in, blonde hair, wearing a cast on her lower leg. Her name was Pat Atier. She told them her story. She met the two men Tuesday in the Walmart parking lot there in Van Buren. They were on a motorcycle and they got to talking. She told the officers that one's name was Rick and his friend's name was Damon. Damon had dyed blonde hair, but was wearing a woman's wig. She said Rick was a younger guy and had a Harley Davidson tattoo on his arm. They asked her if Damon had any tattoos, and she said no. They were like, are you sure? And oh, yeah. She, she was, was like, positive. pretty sure I saw him naked. <laughs> 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 she said that her and Damon went back to her place, but... He made her promise that she'd bring him back to the Terry Motel at 8 o'clock on the dot, and that's what she said she did. She said when she saw on the news that there was a robbery in Cloverleaf Shopping Center, and that's where she met the men, she about had a heart attack, so she had to go tell what Good she saw. Good for her. So, yeah, she she was, is This was huge for, the, huge for the case because up until that point, they didn't have much to go off of. So next stop would be to check out the Terry Motel. They had names and a description of each man. Investigator Taylor spoke with the man in the office at the Terry Motel and asked for the registration books for September 8th and 9th, looking for two men who rode in on a motorcycle, and the worker actually remembered who they were and pointed to a name, Damon Peterson. License plate number 393656, Florida, Harley-Davidson Motorcycle, Party of Two. Taylor was following the breadcrumbs like he was supposed to do. These dumb criminals would get themselves caught at some point. The weekend following the robbery, the men and the family went down to the jewelry store to clean up the place as best as they could, and it was no easy task. No talking took place. They just worked in silence. And there was one spot that no matter how hard they scrubbed or how much bleach was poured on it, the blood just would not come up. They finally just gave up, went home to their families, 
and the spot of blood would remain there long after Staten's jewelry store reopened for business. They tried to like get in contact with insurance to get a new floor put in, but they were denied. What? How crazy is that? Oh, I'm sorry. There were two people murdered. Yeah, you're not going to give us money for a new floor? Like, we're going to have to put a car or a rug over it, I guess. And the plan was for them to reopen the business. Karen wanted to open the store when that's, the time was right. That's got to be so hard. It was. But she wanted to do it for her father, you know, keep his business alive. It meant so much to them. It was their livelihood, too. It's, it's not like they had a choice. But being in that store, yeah, would prove to be difficult for them and overwhelming. And Ruth didn't want to do it, but Karen was trying to talk her into it. She knew how to run the place, too. She had learned over time the buying, advertising, engraving, and bookkeeping from her father. She wasn't the master at the watch repair like Suzanne was, but she could learn and practice at it, I'm sure. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, so September 16th was the day that they would all go in there together, even if it was just for a couple hours. They got in there and a couple minutes went by. And they were like, okay, we can't do this. So they put it off a little bit longer. But they did end up opening it back up. And the love and support shown from friends in the community was unbelievable. An expert carpenter came in one afternoon unannounced and installed a two-way mirror for them in the wall so that anyone working in the back room could see out into the main room without being seen. He told Karen that the mirror would be more helpful than sending flowers which oh, it would. Oh, that is so sweet. It really is. But, I mean, people did send flowers, too, and cards. Ruth had over 200 cards in a box that she hadn't read because emotionally she just couldn't handle it. Another man, Brian Gaines, who was a jeweler from Fort Smith, contacted Karen and offered his assistance as well. He had gone to school with Suzanne so he met up with Karen and Ruth to discuss the best way that they could reopen the store. You know, Kenneth Staten was admired by all the surrounding jewelers, so everyone was willing to help out this family in their time of need. But the Staten women were still worried and scared that the men that did this awful thing would come back into the store again and kill them too. It was always in the back of their minds. And when Karen couldn't sleep at night, she would grab a pencil and sketch out all the rings and other items that were stolen from the store. It was like she had a photographic memory. She knew that if any jewelry was recovered, her sketches would be invaluable to the investigation. I bet she had a lot of late nights then. True. Investigator Don Taylor was a bird dog on point. He had a name, Damon Peterson... He had his companion, Rick. He had the license plate number of the motorcycle, and he had Florida. And Pat Atier also told him that the two men were camped out at Horseshoe Bend up on Beaver Lake. So that was his next stop for any more potential clues. After talking to the man in the permit office at the campgrounds, Taylor discovered that Damon Peterson registered for a spot 2:10 on the evening of September 6th, and the party of two at spot 2:9 had moved over to their campsite with them. The campsite was deserted, but they searched the leftovers in a recent burn pile in the fire pit at spot 2:9. 
They recovered price tags, a jewelry box, some empty ring boxes, a watch band display holder, and remnants of rope that were similar to the one used to tie up Kenneth and Suzanne. Fused to a beer tab was a watch price tag that read $225, too. Taylor was right on their tails, wasn't he? Like him. I like him, too. So he figured that they must have swapped their car out, too, because that's typically what criminals do before they leave town. And other campers at the campground told Taylor that they remembered seeing an old blue and white Cadillac parked at the campsite. Taylor and his men start asking around at local used car lots, and sure enough, they come across a Mr. Jeffcoat at Economy Auto Sales in Rogers, Arkansas. He told Taylor that he traded a Plymouth for a 1971 Cadillac. The Cadillac wasn't worth much, so Mr. Jeffcoat sold it to a salvage yard. Hmm. So Taylor went to the salvage yard and found the car. Right on. He had it towed to the state police headquarters in Fort Smith, and inside the car was an assortment of evidence. A map of local campgrounds, a torn page out of a telephone book that had Kansas Staten's address and phone number on it. Home address and phone number? I believe so, yes. And a copy of the September 11th Northwest Arkansas Morning Times with headlines of the Staten Jewelry Store robbery. Because they had put this out in the news right away with the names and everything of the victims, which is crazy. You don't see that nowadays. No. Mr. Taylor put out a description of Damon Peterson and Rick Anderson saying that they were wanted in connection with the armed robbery and murder in Van Buren, Arkansas. He was hopeful that this older model green Plymouth that they were now driving around would just give out on them and they'd be stranded somewhere. He just wished he knew which direction they were headed next. But since the license tag information and motel reservation, he figured it'd be toward Florida and Georgia. If they were smart, they'd head north, but robbers and murderers usually aren't too smart. Rick Damon and Lorelai had made it all the way to Jacksonville Beach, Florida, and were partying it up. Along the way... Rick told Chantina that it would be in her best interest to disappear, so that's what she did one night for her own safety. I was going to ask, where'd she go? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know where she went, but she dipped out. She peaced out. Yeah, smart on her part. The three of them were staying drunk and high 24-7, and they were strapped, guns everywhere. They were drinking heavy on the night of September 23rd at a bar close by to where they were staying at a motel, on the 300 block of Oceanfront South. And this is a rough place, not somewhere families on vacation would stay. Around 2.30 a.m., Damon and Lorelai left the bar, but Rick stayed behind talking to another couple there. And when he was ready to leave, he was so drunk that he was stumbling out the door. He ends up getting jumped by a guy trying to rob him. Rick reached for his pistol, which was hidden in an ankle holster, but the man wrestled it away from him. Somehow, Rick got away from this guy, and he ran next door to where the motel was and banged on Damon's door. And Damon let Rick in, and he immediately found another gun from beside the table, I guess the bedside table. And Rick stood in the doorway with the gun and just fired aimlessly at the bar at at no one in particular. I don't even think anybody was out there but he just started pulling the trigger. 
If you were going to say that that guy that jumped him, shot him, I was about to be like, oh, have the tables turned. Right. Karma. (laughs) But no. Damon grabbed a gun, too, and ran outside. Oh, my gosh. I know. It's so crazy. Rick went to his room for a quick second, then ran as fast as he could outside in the opposite direction of Damon. These are just two drunk idiots at this point. You know what I just thought about? What? With them running opposite directions outside. In the movie Signs, when they're trying to, like, make the loud noises and (laughs) they're running around the house trying to scare off whatever is out there. And Mel Gibson's like, I'm so angry. And he's just, I'm crazy. Yep. And by that time, the bar owner had already called the police. So they arrived with their guns drawn and a shootout ensued. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's crazy. Damon got hit in the shoulder and was taken to the hospital under arrest. He was charged with attempted murder because he had shot back at the police. You just, you don't do that. Right. Not smart. He was wearing two rings when he was arrested, and I'll get to that in a minute. He's wearing Kenneth's wedding band, didn't he? Uh, I don't know. Rick had hid behind some bushes and thought it was safe to go back to the motel, but the police were actually staking out the place and met him there, and he, he was arrested and taken to the police headquarters in Jacksonville Beach. He requested his one phone call and called a buddy of his who was in the, the bail bonding business. He got a hold of his dad, who wired him the money for bail. I think it was $3,500. Rick was released and was told to come back the following afternoon for his arraignment. He didn't shoot at the cops and didn't have anything major for them to hold him there for, or, you know, at least that they knew about. But as soon as Rick was freed, he jumped on a Greyhound and skipped town. I was about to say, you're just going to tell him, come on back tomorrow. Yeah, he ain't coming back. Lorelai got away. I'm sure she probably took with her as much jewelry as she could. In the two motel rooms, police confiscated $2,000 in $100 bills and various items of jewelry. Lorelai, you didn't take that cash? I guess she didn't know where it was. I bet Damon was probably hiding it from her, just in case. They found five handguns and two sawed-off rifles with homemade silencers, so that's where all their damn money was going to. Damn. They impounded a 1975 Dodge van recently purchased by Rick Anderson and a 1976 Oldsmobile Cutlass bought in Atlanta by Peterson. Oh, now they know they've been to Georgia. Exactly. Authorities there released the names and descriptions of the men on a regional teletype wire after their arrest. The ages of the men were both listed as 25, with Anderson from Topeka, Kansas, and Damon Peterson, who was now also known as Damon Malentino from Atlanta, Georgia. This guy's got quite a few aliases I'll tell you about later. (laughs) So the word obviously quickly reached Arkansas authorities. The next day, September 24th, police chief Goff and his assistant showed up at the state and residence and sat down with Ruth and Karen. They asked them to look at a lineup of photographs. The first one was identified by Karen. She said, that's the one I waited on Monday the 8th. I recognize his long hair and his white teeth. He was tanned just like this man. So he must have just extremely white teeth like <laughs> like Ross and Friends. <laughs> Fluorescent teeth. 
Ruth identified a picture of a man with blonde curly hair. He was wearing a white shirt of some kind. He said, that's him. He came in with a woman and looked at wedding rings. He stayed a long time, and that made me kind of nervous. And Suzanne came from around back and stood by me. Don Taylor arrived shortly after and asked Karen if she would fly down to Florida with them to identify some jewelry found because she oh. would know better than anybody else. After all, she had sketched them all out. When she got to Florida, they drove straight to the hospital where Damon Peterson was being held, and they were taken to a small room. A lady came in and put two rings on the table in front of Karen, and sure enough... She recognized one ring that belonged to her dad. It was the 25th anniversary wedding band that Ruth gave him. So that was nice. That They got that. That was recovered, yeah. yeah, so Ruth could hold on to that forever. And the other ring was from a display case in the store. Karen had actually drawn a sketch of it. It was called the Star of Africa. She was then taken to the police headquarters to identify some more jewelry. She identified a watch a diamond wedding band, and four gold coins that Ruth kept in the safe as mementos. So Karen was a huge help for the investigation and very brave. Prosecuting attorney Ron Fields was able to get warrants for both men for capital murder. They were identified as Richard Philip Anderson, age 23, and Damon Malentino, a.k.a. Damon Peterson, age 36. Karen made her way back to Arkansas. It was a pretty successful trip, to say the least. Now she had a store to reopen. After they arrived back to Arkansas, Investigator Taylor received a phone call from a self-storage owner in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Ruh-roh. Mr. Gifford Heckathorn told Taylor that he had signed a lease agreement on September 11th with a man who signed his name, Damon Peterson, on the contract. Another man was with him riding a motorcycle. They rented space 109 for a month. Heckathorn said his reason for calling the police was that a Mr. William Anderson had called and said he was coming to remove the contents of the storage unit. He said his brother had skipped bond in Florida. His father had provided the bond, so he was going to take the trailer and the motorcycle back to Topeka, Kansas as a way of repayment to their father. So I don't mm. know if that's really his brother or if that was Rick saying Rick he was his brother posing as his brother. I'm not sure, but on September 27th, Taylor got a search warrant issued. Him and his men took off for Fayetteville, which isn't that far away either. Mm-mm. And inside the unit, they found the camper and the motorcycle. Inside the camper, they found a gold coin, a buffalo nickel a jewelry price tag with Karen's handwriting, an orange blossom ring filler, a book of matches from the Terry Motel, a book of matches from the Horseshoe Bend Marina in Rogers, a man's suit, a woman's coat, a black Harley Davidson jacket, sleeping bags and dirty sheets. So the evidence is just piling up. At right. This point. It's adding and adding yeah. and adding. Rick Anderson had made his way all the way up to Canada running from the police. One of his friends told him that that was the best move, so that's what he did. He had contacted his father, too, in Kansas, and his father told him that Arkansas police were looking for him in connection to the jewelry store murders. Three months after the Arkansas crime, Rick was in Vancouver at a crowded tavern. 
He was approached by an older man who was trying to pick him up. Rick then realized that he was at a gay bar. And knowing that earlier, he definitely wouldn't have entered because Rick was extremely homophobic. But he thought he could take advantage of the situation he was in. So he figured this old guy with this fancy suit probably had a lot of money. So he just played along with it. And the man offered to take Rick back to his room and Rick agreed to join him. When they got inside, the old man began flirting with Rick, and as soon as he touched Rick's face, Rick just snapped. Like, extremely homophobic. <laughs> but he took out his four-inch buck knife and stabbed him over and over and over Holy again. Holy shit. Yeah, until... Ricky, buddy, you're just adding fuel to the fire. I know. So bad. But he just kept stabbing until the man fell to the floor dead. Rick didn't even know the man's name until 10 years later when he would end up being charged with the murder of a Toronto business executive, Michael John Hendy. So now Rick was on the run again. another murder, this time one that he actually committed himself. And while Rick was still working his way through Canada, Damon Peterson was plotting his way to escape a murder charge in Arkansas. His first offense was that his real name was actually Eugene Wallace Perry. Shut your face. <laughs> Damn it, Eugene. Are you kidding? No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> Eugene Wallace Perry. And that he had never even been in Van Buren, Arkansas in his entire life. He said that his only connection with Damon Peterson and Rick Anderson was that he was the fence they used to sell the stolen jewelry. Do you know what that means? Yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah. But I was just like, wait, what? Yeah, one of his other aliases, Eugene Wallace Perry. So is he acting like he's got like multiple personalities Dude, or something? it sure as hell sounds like it, yeah. So he said he was in Oxford, Alabama at the time of the crimes in Arkansas visiting with family. He said he had witnesses to prove it. His two teenage daughters, Dawn and Tanya, his ex-wife, Glenda Perry, his father and mother, Wallace and Euline. Is that how you say that? Euline? Is that a name? Euline? I don't know. Well, it is now. <laughs> it's spelt Eugene only with the L in the place of the G. Oh. Euline? Sure. Yeah. Let's go with it. Okay. His father and mother, Wallace and Euline, and then a few other friends. Eugene Wallace Perry had a four-page rap sheet of offenses such as robbery, possession of stolen property, possession of contro controlled substances, and distribution of narcotics in Georgia, Tennessee, and Alabama. Also included were a list of aliases, Damon Malentino, Damon Peterson, Jim Jackson, Eugene Wallace Hubbard, and Marvin Allen Williams. Perry was born in Ohio on July 8, 1944, but grew up in Gadsden and Oxford, Alabama. In one arrest in Alabama, he had threatened to cut off the fingers of a man's son if the man didn't tell him where some drug money was hidden. That's Some how, mobster shit. That, now, yeah. he was. There was rumors that he was somehow connected to the mob, actually. Eugene Perry and Cindy Sue Brown the real name of Lorelai. Oh. 
hooked up sometime before 1980, probably through their mutual involvement in the drug scene in Atlanta. This could actually be another case, honestly. In Tyrone, Georgia, a little town south of Atlanta at Camper's Paradise, Eugene and Cindy Sue... That name is so <laughs> no southern. Wonder, no wonder she changed it to Lorelai. I like Cindy Sue. Cindy. It just reminds me of uh, the Grinch. Cindy Lou Who? Yeah. They had lived together for about three months in a trailer there. Now, what was interesting about this location was that there was a double murder at this campground on August 25th, 1980. Well, you could say a triple murder because it was a woman, Barbara Price, her 12-year-old son, and their dog. So, Mm, yeah. We're not doing that one. No. So the woman and her son were tied up similar to the way Kenneth and Suzanne were tied up, and there were two gunshots in both of their heads similar to the jewelry store murders as well. So authorities had linked Eugene to these murders as well, He had actually had an intimate relation with this woman during his stay over there. So a lot of people thought that he was married to Cindy Sue, and they weren't for sure, like all the campers around there, but they knew he had spent some time with Barbara at her camp. She was like, she ran the place. She had her own camper office type thing. She told him that if he stayed a little longer, there was a group of bikers coming to town that he could sell drugs to. If he did, she wanted a percent of the profits. He did end up staying and selling to them, but I don't know what he killed her over. Maybe he wanted all the money. I don't know. It really wasn't long before the jewelry store murders, though. No, that was like, like a, couple, a week. Two weeks or less. So that's just crazy. In preparation for his defense... Eugene had cut off his dyed blonde hair. So, yes, he's trying to make the argument that he wasn't Damon Peterson, who also had dyed blonde hair. It's like, come on, bro. (laughs) Yeah, he could, like, while he was, like, out on the run, he could have gotten some box color from Walmart and just (laughs) dyed it brown. Right, or shaved it off. Something. Not wear a woman's wig. He was busy writing down his alibi for the time. He was supposed to have been in Van Buren, Arkansas. After all, it was Damon Peterson, not him, who killed those people and robbed the store. He knew his family would vouch for him. He knew people that would testify in saying that Eugene Perry was merely the person who helped Damon Peterson fence the jewelry stolen in Arkansas. And he had plenty of time to plot out this whole story sitting in his jail cell. So he's saying he's a completely separate person. Than, yes. Huh. But they already picked him out of a lineup. Yeah, they there's know what so he looks. There's so many eyewitnesses that yes. said they saw that exact person. He freaking hooked up with Pat. Yeah, Pat. Pat knows. Pat, Pat saw all of him. All. January 13th, 1981, in Chinatown, north of downtown Vancouver, Rick Anderson was still just trying to get by and survive the cold. He desperately needed money and thought it would be a good idea to rob a bank for some cash to travel. Are you sure his name's not Eugene as well? I know. He's more of a Eugene than Eugene. So Rick purchased a pellet gun, and with the encouragement of two cases of beer, he mapped out this brilliant plan 
He bought a suit coat and pants and wore that over his regular clothes, and he would be posing as a businessman. I feel like him coming up with a plan, like in my mind, I visualize it being drawn out in a crown. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> So he put the pellet gun in a briefcase, and then in a tote bag, he also brought with him a hard hat because he was going to change into a construction worker after the robbery to fool everyone. He walked to the bank of Nova Scotia, and wouldn't you know it, there was a television news crew out in the front of the bank filming a story for evening news, but that wasn't going to stop Rick. He decided to go along with the plan because how could he get caught with such a well-thought-out plan, right? He flagged down a taxi and tossed the hard hat in the back seat and told the guy to wait for him while he went into the bank and made a withdrawal. Sure, a withdrawal. He walked in and stood at the register. The lady asked if she could help him, and that's when he placed the briefcase on the counter and showed her the pellet gun, which... I guess looked like a real gun and not a toy gun. I don't know. He said, put the money in the briefcase. And she did, and so did the teller standing next to her. And Rick walked out of the bank and found his cab, and they were off. And he told him to take him to New Westminster. But out of nowhere, the taxi driver pulled over to the side and turned off the engine because there was a police car behind them with their lights on. Oh, no. The driver refused to turn the cab back on, so Rick forced the driver out of the cab and got into the driver's seat. But before he could even start the cab, the police had him surrounded, and they fired at the car and forced Rick to surrender. He ends up exiting the car and was immediately pounced on by two German shepherds. Yeah. After he was taken to the police station, he was booked by the name Ivo Shapox. Because what? for some reason, that was the ID he was carrying around with him. I assume he stole that from somebody, but the officers knew that that wasn't him. He was way too tan, first off, to be a Canadian, and he didn't even have a Canadian accent. They knew he was American, but he wouldn't tell them his real name. They placed him in a cell next to a man who told him that he was getting out real soon and that he would help him with whatever he needed on the outside. How are these people just so friendly? Right? Well, I'll tell you why. Oh, or no. I'll tell you how. Rick was worried about what little possessions he had back at his rented room, so he wanted to help. So they started chatting and Rick started spilling the beans. He told this guy about Arkansas and that he was a wanted man there for murder I don't know, maybe he was just exhausted or maybe he was just that dumb. But he had let his guard down and it was to the wrong person because it turned out... Was that, that an officer they placed yes, in the cell? Yes, it was an undercover policeman. But he wasn't even in there for Rick. He was in there for a guy in the cell next to them. Oh, shit. Yeah, but I mean, if this guy's going to start talking to me, I'm going to listen, right? Six days went by, and Rick was flown by commercial airlines to Fort Smith, Arkansas, and escorted off the plane. His wrists handcuffed in front of him, escorted by Sheriff Ball, Police Chief Hicks, Don Taylor, and Ron Fields, the heroes of this case. The men were happy that they didn't have to drive the 2,500-mile return trip from Vancouver to bring him home. 
Thank God. Right? They can. They could have used our tax monies for that. It's oh, totally yeah. fine. Take it. Anderson would plead innocent to the Staten murders. He said he tied Mr. Staten and his young daughter up, but it was Damon slash Eugene who fired the shots. Even though Eugene threatened Rick, saying that he would find his family and kill them, Rick wanted to turn over a new leaf. He told attorney Ron Fields everything. Eugene was returned to Arkansas to stand trial for murder on February 6, 1981. He had already received 10 years for the shootings in Jacksonville Beach. He was moved to the Sebastian County Jail to a maximum security cell. He had two attorneys appointed to represent him against a charge of capital murder. July 23, 1981 was scheduled to be the trial date. The state and women were all mentally and emotionally prepared to do their part in testifying against Perry. All three would say what needed to be said and nothing more. By the time Ron Field spoke to the jury, he, he knew this case like the back of his hand. He had so much admiration for the state and family, and he really just wanted to do his very best for them and get Perry the death sentence that he deserved. But what really blew this case wide open was Pat Atier, right? Yes, ma'am. Without her coming forward when she did and the information that she gave the investigators, I mean, it would have just gone cold, right? You would think. You never thought a one-night stand would solve a case. <laughs> sure enough, it did. And Ruth Staten was forever grateful to her, even though Pat didn't even think she deserved the recognition. Eugene Wallace Perry did not testify in his defense. The jury deliberated two hours and returned a guilty verdict and then after an additional two hours and 15 minutes they read their verdict and Eugene Wallace Perry would die for his crime good and he would say afterwards well I'm not guilty for one and I'm not Damon Peterson for another so the Bro. Li- yeah the lies just they add up till you can't identify what is true and what isn't it's just crazy the state and family sat in that courtroom brave and proud. They amazed their friends by not crying when the verdict was read or shouting with joy knowing that Perry would be electrocuted. They took it in stride, just like everything else they had, that had happened to them in their lives. Richard Philip Anderson stood trial October 6, 1981, and he looked a little bit different than when he was first brought to Van Buren. 10 months in a jail cell, and he had lost that tan that he was known for having. Anderson, unlike Perry, took the stand. He told the jury the whole story of that night and how he tied them up with the intention that they wouldn't be harmed, but instead in order for them to get away without them calling the police. Anderson showed remorse for their deaths and said it shouldn't have happened but he didn't take any steps to save Suzanne or Kenneth, and that's what the prosecuting attorney pointed out. Rick said he was scared for his own life and was unarmed when he tied them up. He was asked, You stayed with that other person that walked out of the store alive and you made no attempt to leave, correct? And Rick answered, I didn't think I had a choice. October 14th, 1981, After deliberating 10 hours, the jury gave its verdict guilty on the charge of first-degree murder. Richard Philip Anderson received life in prison. It was actually 
the verdict that Anderson's lawyers had hoped for, though, because he got to live. Like, yeah, he wasn't put to death. Yeah. Ironically, though, Anderson's father moved to Rogers to be closer to his son, and he opened up a flea market there, and he was bludgeoned to death with a <gasps> hammer in 1991 in a robbery. Oh, my God. Like, crazy coincidence. That is just wild. Now, what the heck happened to Lorelai or Cindy Sue Brown after she escaped in Jacksonville Beach? Well, eventually, Arkansas authorities would catch up to her, but it was a couple years after the trials of Perry and Anderson were concluded. She had fled to Texas and then to California, where she would be arrested for prostitution. Shocker. (laughs) Yeah. Georgia grabbed her and charged her as an accessory to the campground murders for Barbara Price and her her son. And dog. And dog. After Georgia paroled her, she was arrested by Van Buren police and charged with conspiracy to commit robbery. On February 11th, 1985, she apologized to the state and family and pleaded no contest to the charges. She explained that all her trouble came from her relationship with Perry and with drugs. And I think it was too soon for the family to want to hear anything from her at that point. Right. It took 16 years for Perry to finally be executed because he tried to go through the whole appeals process. Ultimately, he was denied. There was even another inmate that tried to take the blame for the murders of Kenneth and Suzanne Staten. And I found this to be like the craziest thing. Marion Pruitt, also known as Mad Dog Pruitt, was this habitual criminal. In 1981, his wife was found in a field bludgeoned to death with a hammer and burned. And he was missing and went on a crime spree consisting of robberies and murders across four different states. He's on my list. Is he really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, mainly like bank robberies where he would kill the bank teller in the process. And in Fort Smith, Arkansas, October 12th, 1981, he abducted and murdered a convenience store worker. Her body was found that afternoon less than a mile from the convenience store. He was eventually caught and convicted in every state where the murders took place. And he was scheduled for execution in Arkansas. But while on death row, he met none other than Eugene Wallace Perry, And I'm sure that they had plenty of time to talk in depth about the crimes that they committed. I'm sure they had a lot of things in common, too, being psychopaths that they were. They ended up reaching a pact. Perry was being executed for crimes he had never admitted to doing. And Mad Dog, on the other hand, didn't give a shit and wanted as many Mm -hmm. crimes on his record as possible. He was even trying to find an author to write a book about him. He had admitted to the Arkansas crime already, which put him in Arkansas close to the time of the state murder. So Mad Dog agreed to say that him and Rick Anderson knew each other for a long time, and they committed those murders together. He called Rick Sportster Rick in his little made-up story. Then Perry was just the guy they sold the jewelry to in Atlanta. So this gave Eugene Wallace Perry a chance to appeal But the problem was that Mad Dog's story was full of holes. 
because he was actually being interviewed in New Mexico by an FBI agent during the time the crimes took place in Arkansas. Not to, not to mention all the eyewitnesses that placed Perry not... I was literally going to say... Yeah, not Mad Dog at the places in Arkansas. So it was a <laughs> good try, I guess. No, bad try. Yeah, well, in 1995, the court concluded that there was no claim to Perry's innocence based on Marion Pruitt's confession, so that was whatever. Eugene Wallace Perry's death was... On August 6, 1997, five relatives of the Statons, including Ruth, were on hand to watch Arkansas's first ever closed-circuit telecast of an execution. Oh, wow. Witnesses also included Perry's spiritual advisor and his attorney. Perry had become a Buddhist, and he had an unusual final statement, which was spoken as a chant. He said, I am innocent of this crime, I take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha. I'm not going to say the next four words because I don't know how to pronounce it, but the correctional department director actually said that Perry once translated this part as the jewel has just left the lotus, whatever the hell that means. Ruth Staten said she hoped no other family had to go through what her family did for so long, she had waited 17 years for this day. She felt like justice was served, but closure, she still wasn't sure what that was. What's really sad is that Ruth outlived everyone in her family except for Elaine, I believe. Ruth died this year, really? 2023, and then Karen died in 2018. You said, wait, didn't you say one of them had rheumatoid arthritis as well? Was Elaine, that? Elaine did. Elaine She's did. Okay. the only one living still. Janet died in 2014. But they always say that a parent should never have to see her children pass before her, so that I feel like that was really yeah, sad. Yeah, parents shouldn't have to bury their child. Yeah. Should be the, the way around. Yeah. Karen kept the state and jewelry store open until 1998 when it ended up being sold. And that was their father's dream, and I'm sure that was their goal, to keep it open for him. He had accomplished so much getting that business started, especially having to fight with rheumatoid arthritis all those years. And it was a way for the family to be around each other all the time. And that right there is the story of the Staten family. That was a good one. I like that. And we had little sub-stories, like kind of snuck in there like when you said that's why i was asking you the other night like how what? should i break this down like you did with the three points of view i was like hmm oh from katie hilwilka yeah you did good thank you it, it, it flowed very, very well it was a very interesting story i was i was hooked but it was thanks to that book for sure anita paddock right mm -hmm. closing time mm -hmm. she's written Two or three other books. I have one in a physical book to eventually do a case on. I think I have another one saved on the Kindle by her as well. And then um, what is that last one? Hold on. Hold your horses. Yes, there's three other ones. So she did the closing time. So there's one. She's done one 
Blind Rage. Closing time. And I believe Blind Rage is also Van Buren. Let me look. Ruby Ann Park. That's that oh, story. So she wrote a book on that one. She's on my list. Yes. Uh, Killing Spree is another one of her books. And then the one I have downstairs is... Major props to the investigators, though. Holy cow. They were so good in this case. The one I have downstairs to do is called Cold-Blooded. Okay, cool. Yeah, Don Taylor was on top of it. Oh, yeah. Point A to B to yeah. C. Uh, yes. He, yeah, amazing. I just thought, yeah, Ron Fields was on the Charles Ray Vines okay. case. Yeah. I did look up my... My thing. He was good too. On top of those warrants getting issued, and then Pat Atier. Girl. Girl. Get it. (laughs) One one leg and all almost. And then Karen with the sketches and going all the way to Florida to identify. That's just awesome. Everybody played their part. Perfectly. And did a very good job Mm -hmm. doing it, yes. That wraps up another episode here on the Caught Red Podcast. If you like us, share us. Leave us a review wherever you listen to help us get more dog lovers and true crime lovers to discover us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Just don't forget to spell it with P-A-W-D. Don't forget that we do enjoy getting recommendations. If you have any, send those our way. Chat with us anytime. We do love going back and forth with a lot of you. We will be back next week with more true crime. But until then, stay local, shop local, murder local. Murder local.